We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is Ben Bueller Garcia. If you're paying attention in junior high, you know that a crucible is a vessel that's used to melt and refine metals at a very high temperature. If you've been on this planet more than a couple decades, you probably recognize that you've been through something I like to call a crucible moment. You're tested in a high-pressure situation, and how you react and pass through those moments often determines your future mindset and perhaps even the course of your life. Now, a crucible moment doesn't have to be as extreme as Kim Campbell faced on April 7, 2003 over Baghdad. It might be a moral or an ethical dilemma. It might be the day you found the courage to finally quit drinking or ask your future spouse to marry you. Or, as in Kim's case, it might be outside factors suddenly thrust upon you. The beauty of the human mind and spirit is that we can all learn from every situation if we choose to. Personally, I prefer to learn from other people's mistakes rather than make them on my own. The lessons learned over Baghdad that day and from leading airmen for over a 24-year career in the Air Force are the subject of a new book called Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. It is written by retired Air Force Colonel Kim Campbell, callsign Killer Chick. The book was just released March 8th. It's hot off the presses, so we're very pleased. Kim, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. Now, Kim, your first appearance on our show was uh, alongside your husband, Scott, who's also an A-10 pilot, way back in 2016. We called that episode The Distinguished Couple because between the two of you, you have four distinguished flying crosses, uh, yours for the mission over Baghdad, and Scott was awarded three over the course of four days during the Battle of Takurgar in Afghanistan. The thing you share in common besides a marriage and a family is that aircraft. So let's introduce by starting off the ugliest plane any pilot could ever love. <laughs> yeah, the mighty A-10 Warthog. Uh, definitely my favorite plane in the inventory, but I am definitely biased. Um, but the A-10 was designed to provide close air support to our troops on the ground, which is why I decided that that was the airplane that I wanted to fly. I fell in love with the mission of being able to support our ground troops. And the A-10 was designed to take hits while performing its mission. Uh, I know that firsthand, um, but it's an impressive airplane. Now, I was just had, was out at an air show, and I had uh, some family visiting from out of town, and I was explaining things about them. I, I noticed them in particular to look at the, the front landing gear of the A-10, how it's kind of pitched to the side a little bit, and that's to accommodate the cannon, basically the, the system yeah. that the plane is built around, correct? Yeah, the A-10 is built around a 30-millimeter Gatling gun. It's 19 feet long, and uh, to make it a, a point-and-shoot weapon so that where we point is where we shoot, uh, they actually move the the gear slightly offset so the gun, the gun barrel that you shoot from, is centered up on the airplane. Kim, can you, for its radio, we have to paint mental pictures. The shell, I guess you'd call it, the 30-millimeter shell, that's about, what, 18 inches long? Uh, it's about with the with the bullet on itself. It's probably about I don't know nine inches, and it's uh, it's it's a thirty millimeter shell, um, but it's uh, it's incredibly precise, which is what is important to us. So that if we need to shoot uh, close to friendlies, that we can be very precise with our weapons. I was talking to one of the demonstration pilots out at this air show I mentioned, and he said thirty yards. 
away from friendly troops is not is workable? I mean, you can get in that close. Well, workable. I mean, it's ideally we're not shooting that close, but if we have to, we can get in very close to friendly forces. It would be a danger close scenario where we're working very closely to with the ground con, uh, commander to make sure that we have approval to shoot that close to friendly forces. What are some of the other survivability design elements of this aircraft of the A-10? Well, the A-10 uh, itself was uh, is designed to take hits, which means that our fuel tanks are actually enclosed in a protective foam lining to prevent fire after battle damage. Uh, has two very reliable engines. Probably most loved by its pilots is that we sit in what we call a titanium bathtub, which uh, provides us protection against enemy fire. And then all of our flight control systems are built with manual redundant backup systems so that if we lose one hydraulic system, another can take over. If we lose both hydraulic systems, which is what happened in my case that day over Baghdad, uh, then we have a backup emergency system as well. Kim, I want to spend the next segment having you describe that situation because that's obviously an important part of this story. But uh, going back a little bit, you, your journey into the Air Force began, as I understand, when you witnessed the, the Space Shuttle Challenge disaster, and you asked, you told your dad, I want to be an astronaut, and could <laughs> take it from there. Yeah, you know, it's something, it's interesting looking back at that moment, because that was when I was about 10 years old, and, you know, there was the thrill and excitement when I watched the shuttle launch, and then there was the devastation as we watched the tragedy that played out when we lost all of the astronauts on board. But there was something about that moment that connected with me in terms of realizing that astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was big and important that they were willing to risk their lives for. And I decided then that that was what I was going to do. I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, become a fighter pilot, with the eventual goal of going on to become an astronaut. You know, Kim, you already know this because I know you listen to American Warrior Radio every week, but we just recently had the first female shuttle commander on the show. And she expressed that your sentiments exactly. We do dangerous things because otherwise, how, how could we explore? You know, how can we achieve that next level of safety or that next level of success without somebody taking the risk of doing dangerous things? Now, your dad was an Air Force Academy graduate. Did he have mixed feelings about you undertaking that adventure? Because as I recall or as I understand, that was right on sort of the cusp of not a lot of women in the Air Force uh, not a lot of women at the Air Force Academy. Yeah, I think there was part of my dad that was it was really very hard to see his little girl go off to do something like this. But I think over time he realized that I was very committed to this goal and this dream of mine. And he realized once that I was committed to it that he was going to do everything he could to make sure that I was ready for it. Uh, so that I, when I got to the Air Force Academy, I was ready both mentally and physically for the challenges ahead. Uh, so he has been my biggest supporter along the way. I wouldn't call it exactly a crystal moment, Kim, but there was a, let's just say, a, a formative moment a little bit earlier in your life. Uh, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left, but tell our listeners about your good enough for a girl experience in, in high school. Yeah, you know, uh, I took wood shop in high school, actually middle school, because I thought it would be fun. I enjoyed building things. I worked with my dad in the garage, and uh, we were building a pencil case, and, the, you know, not very exciting, but that's what we were building. And I, I just, before I stayed it, I thought I'd ask that my instructor who happened to be an older gentleman and just thought, well, let me just make sure it's good before I start staining it. And so I asked him what he thought, and he looked at me and kind of the smile on his face, and he said, well, it's good enough for a girl. And I was kind of like, what? What does that even mean? Like, what does that even, 
I didn't even know what to take from that. I mean, part of me was really angry and wanted to leave and walk out of that classroom. But I also knew that my grade would uh, depended upon, you know, doing a good job. And I, you know, it, I just looked at that and was like, you know what? I never wanted to be just good enough at anything. And I took that comment as kind of motivation to excel in everything that I did. Now, do you still have that pencil face, Kim? <laughs> my dad has it. I gave okay. it to him as a gift. <laughs> okay. Um, in your book, several times you cite uh, Dr. Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Grit is not a word we hear much in use today, but that word perfectly describes your movement through the Air Force community, your, your career in the Air Force. Do you think we need to hear that word more often in today's society, Kim? I think so, because I think we face incredible challenges in, in everything that we do in life. And it's something that I talk to my kids about today, about you're going to get knocked down. You're going to face failure. You're going to make mistakes. It is all about what you do in that moment. Can you get back up? Can you dust yourself off and give it another go? Well, in your case, you basically refused to take no from the Air Force Academy. I took a little bit well, of grit. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, I did get a rejection letter from the Air Force Academy on my first attempt at applying, and it was devastating. Uh, but I wasn't going to quit because that was my goal. That was my dream. That is everything that I worked for. And so I decided to write the Air Force Academy a letter every week to tell them that if somebody decided that they didn't want to be there, that they would turn down their appointment, that I was ready to go. I was willing to go, and I would be there in a heartbeat. Ladies and gentlemen, that's grit. We'll be back with more with Kim K.C. Campbell, Killer Chick. We'll talk about that morning or that day, April 7, 2003. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. These are your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking to A-10 pilot Kim Campbell. She's got a great new book out, literally fresh off the press. It's called Flying in the Face of Fear, a fighter pilot's lesson on leading with courage. You can learn more. Visit Kim-KC-Campbell-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Kim, we're talking about grit and how we don't hear that word much in use anymore, and both of us wish we could have more examples of that. Now, you, after your persistence and your grit, you not only got into the Air Force Academy, you excelled. You became the cadet wing commander, which is, I understand, that you were responsible for all 4,000 or however many cadets it was at the Air Force Academy? Yeah, it was my senior year at the Air Force Academy, and uh, I was selected to be the cadet wing commander. So in charge of 4,000 of my uh, of the cadets, essentially 4,000 of my peers, which was a lot harder uh, that I realized um, because it was a, a pretty challenging job, but one that I was able to learn a lot from. Um, I, it was an opportunity to learn from some very uh, senior leaders in our at the Air Force Academy, as well as some incredible enlisted leaders uh, who were mentors of mine while I was in that job. Is that, I assume it's based on grades, it's based on lots of things, but maybe also that intangible leadership quality? Uh, it is. You know, it's an interview process. So, yeah, I mean, you have to have good grades otherwise, you, because if you can't balance the academics, you're not going to survive there. But it really is um, some of those leadership skills. And I had done a few leadership positions prior to that. Um, and so it's all about how you can handle situations, what ideas you have, 
uh, it is it a, a lot of it is some of those things that are a little bit harder to measure, more yep. subjective. In your book, you talk about you know how important mentorship is, and anybody, hopefully, all of us have had good mentors throughout our life and have paid it forward by mentoring other young people. But one of the pieces of advice you received was to start keeping a journal. And in your book, you have some segments of some of the journal entries and and your letter home. And I I tell you, one thing Kim really touched me, and I think this is a letter you wrote home while you're still at the academy. You, You told your parents, I know that killing people and possibly dying for my country is part of my job. I'm not looking forward to it. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things I think, I, you know, when I started at this on this journey, like I just wanted to be a fighter pilot. Like it just sounded fun and exciting and I knew it was an important job, but I don't know that I fully grasped the reality of it. And as I spent time at the Air Force Academy and a little going through some of our training and talking about more of what we're doing, you know, the reality of it all kind of sunk in and, and then certainly going to combat the reality very much sinks in in terms of what we're being asked to do. And it's, I mean, it's not something that you look forward to or that you're excited about. It is something that you, you know, you know, it's your job was to protect our troops on the ground. And I was going to do everything that I could to make that happen. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a tough thing. And it was a, a tough thing learning, you know, and very early in my life um, of just about the realities of war. Kim? Johnny Bravo offered to take me up for a backseat ride, but unfortunately I didn't act on it quickly enough. And then last week I was working a two-star admiral about getting me in the back of an F-18, and I was shot down. I feel pardon the pun. But I'm going to use elements from your book to maintain some grit and keep aspiring to that opportunity. Um, your first call sign was a little less cool than Killer Check. Do, do you recommend <laughs> yeah, quite. Bananas, quite cool. bananas and ginger snaps, or what, what should I eat the morning of? Or nothing. Yeah, I would, uh, something uh, that's not overly spicy, I wouldn't go for the uh, breakfast burritos. But, uh, yeah, I struggled with air sickness throughout my first time, in, you know, flying and at pilot training. So um, it almost derailed me because it was so miserable. And I questioned, you know, is this really what I'm meant to do? Um, I used so many air sickness bags on my first, you know, three weeks of pilot training that I got the call sign bags. So thankfully, it did not stay with me for the rest of my career. Yeah, Killer Chick is definitely much more preferable. Let's talk about April 7, 2003, which is, it's interesting, Kim, when I picked up the book, I expected that experience to be sort of the central part of, of, of the themes that then came off of that experience. But there's so much more in the book, and this is really just one. Now, it's a significant one. But um, let's just, uh, we'll have to kind of, spread this out over the break, Kim, but talk a little bit about April 7, 2003. Was this your first combat deployment? Uh, this was actually my second combat okay. deployment. I had deployed to Afghanistan in 2002 before going to Iraq in 2003. Yeah, describe how that morning started off. You get the alert to fly to support some, or you maybe were already on alert in the air when you had some troops in combat who needed help. Yeah, so this was a really a normal mission for us. We were tasked to fly up to Baghdad wait, refuel, we'd get gas before we did, and then we would just wait on alert in case there was a call. Uh, Unfortunately, that day on April 7th, the weather was terrible. There were clouds covering Baghdad, and, you know, I we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get in there and do anything. And then we got the call from our ground troops. They were taking fire, uh, troops in contact, and we decided we were going to get in there as quickly as we could and do anything that we could to help them out. Uh, so we found our way below the weather. Uh, my flight lead found a hole in the clouds and kind of dove down through. 
And then I uh, dove down through the weather as well. As soon as we got down below the weather, we could instantly see this firefight. I mean, we were low. We could see the the tracers and bright flashes and smoke. And um, at about that time, we also started to see these puffs of gray and white smoke and bright flashes in the air right next to my carpet. Um, it was, you know, a bit eye-opening, I guess you could say, uh, surreal in many ways because it was everything that we trained for and planned for. Um, but at the same time, we've got a mission to do, and we don't want want to let the troops on the ground down. In ATEM language, how low is low in that case? Uh, so we were down below the weather. We were around about five to 6,000 feet, um, okay. which is not low in the A-10. We would, you know, we could be at 100 feet uh, in the A-10. Um, but this is kind of a, an awkward elevation to be at uh, because we were highlighted a little bit below the clouds trying to be in a position where we could see the friendly location. And did your flight lead make the first pass or did you make the first pass or how does that work logistically? My flight lead rolled in pretty quickly as soon as we got down below the weather. Um, he he could see it immediately, kind of saw the whole uh, situation with our friendlies on the west side of the Tigris River, enemy over on the east side of the Tigris River. Uh, nice, clearly defined river to tell us where the friendlies and the enemy uh, was at. Uh, he rolled in very quickly um, from north to south and was told uh, that it was not effective because we, we had to come in from south to north. Uh, so we adjusted our run-in heading and then we decided we would each make about two passes each uh, because of the high threat situation. And then we would climb up, reassess, get our energy back and go from there. Well, I assume you're using the, the gun and, and just missiles? Uh, we use gun and rockets, rockets. Uh, because our target was underneath a bridge. And we, uh, we needed to use that forward firing to get right underneath the bridge where the enemy was hiding. I want to go into more, more details about this, this mission after the break, but i got to tell you that... That wasn't your first time in contact, right? Oh, it was not. I mean, it was certainly was not. It was just the most, uh, I would say it was the most high threat um, where, you know, not only were we engaging the enemy, but the enemy was also engaging with us. Uh, and uh, coming off that target um, is when I felt and heard that loud explosion at the back of the airplane. Okay, we'll get back up into that. Uh, good time to be sitting in a titanium bathtub. Your host, Ben Buehler-Gersey. We're talking with Kim Campbell. Learn more at kim-kc-campbell.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with A-10 pilot Kim Campbell. She's got a great book out just released called Flying in the Face of Fear, a Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. Kim, when we last left our hair, when she was in an A-10 diving on some enemy forces underneath the bridge in Baghdad, and I, I guess you delivered your ordinance and you started to pull off, and then what happened? Yeah, I p pulled off target to trying to get away from the ground, away from the threat, and that is when I felt and heard a huge explosion at the back of the airplane. I mean, there was 
no doubt in my mind that I had been hit. Bright red, orange fireball. I could see it. I could feel it. Uh, I knew immediately that I was hit. The jet dumped over, pointed nose low down towards Baghdad. And I remember I tried to pull back on the control stick just instinctively, and absolutely nothing happened. I could see Baghdad getting closer, and I knew I might have to eject. And I just quickly tried to analyze the situation, figure out what was going wrong and what could I do um, other than eject, which I knew wasn't going to be a great option for me. So I, I figured out very quickly that I had lost all of the hydraulics on my airplane, which is what allows us to fly. And uh, I knew really my options at that point were eject out of the airplane or put the jet into our backup emergency system and hope that it worked. Uh, thankfully, I, I flipped that switch and the jet worked exactly as advertised and it slowly started to climb out and away from Baghdad. So at, at that time, were you were you inverted or were you upright? Uh, just nose low, upright, but kind of in a left-hand turn diving down towards Baghdad. And is it, you know, I don't... Kim movies aren't always accurate, but is it like the movies where there's all kinds of bells and whistles start to go off and your your gauges? It was, uh, it was a lot like that in many ways. I think you know, I feel like time slowed down some because I just remember so many things in that moment. You know, I remember like looking out the front of the cockpit and I could see the Tigris River. I could see Baghdad getting closer. And in that instant of trying to analyze the situation, I remember I had this master caution light. It's up on our cockpit glare shield that's flashing at me. I look down at our caution panel. It's lit up like a Christmas tree. I've got all these lights and, you know, just trying to decipher which ones are the most important. Uh, it just, there was a lot going on all at once, a lot going wrong all at once. Uh, and it was really just about focusing on what was most important. You know, what was the most important problem, the most critical problem? You know, what could I handle in that moment, which was trying to get that airplane under control? Hey, you know, it's interesting you say that because in your book, Kim talks about your experiences and then how that translates into issues, insights that we can only either use in our personal lives or in business or whatever it might be. And, and identifying priorities, critical priorities right off the bat is so important. And in that case, you had not even seconds to do that. Yeah. And, and the reason that I was successful in that moment was because of all of the training and preparation that I had done in advance leading up to that moment. I mean, in that moment over Baghdad with my airplane plunging to the ground, I did not have time to open a checklist. I didn't have time to ask for help. I, I just had to react and respond in that moment. Uh, and thankfully, I had done a lot of training. I had done a lot of practice and preparation for that moment exactly. Uh, even though it was one of those things I never expected, you know, a situation I never expected to find myself in. But I had planned. I had put in the work. And, you know, we were prepared for that. Flying an A-10 without hydraulics, what would be a civilian equivalent of that? Well, I equate it to what some people have shared with me, which is driving a dump truck or a semi-truck without power steering. Uh, it's not something I've done, right? So I can't really tell you exactly how accurate it is. But it was a very heavy airplane to fly. Uh, it was not very maneuverable. I had a really hard time with it initially until I kind of got the hang of it. Um, but if I took my hands off the stick, the airplane wanted to roll. I mean, it was not a stable platform at that point. And w your wingman, I assume, was still around, came close by, and did he did he kind of fly around and take a look and share with you what he saw, or did he think it better to, to leave that unspoken at that point in time? No, my wingman was so critical on that mission. I mean, in that moment when I was hit over Baghdad, as soon as I told him that I was hit, he immediately became very directive in terms of helping me. 
Um, I think he could sense in my limited communication the amount of trouble that I was having. And he immediately told me to come west, to get over the friendly location so that if I had to eject, I would have some chance of survival and ideally float down over the friendlies. He told me to put out more chaff and flare from our countermeasure system um, so that the enemy wouldn't hit us again because they were still shooting at us. I mean, he just had this incredible situational awareness that I didn't because I was so focused on trying to get that airplane under control. And once we kind of got out of Baghdad, he came up next to me to do a battle damage check, which was just a look over at the airplane. And gosh, I remember him telling me, you've got hundreds of holes in your fuselage and tail section and a hole about the size of a football in the back horizontal stabilizer, uh, which did not sound good, (laughs) to say the least. It doesn't sound like the news you'd want to get at that particular point in time. but uh, No, but I knew something was wrong. I couldn't see it. I mean, I I couldn't see any of it. So you're fighting this plane. How long of a a flight back to your landing? Uh, It was about an hour flying home from Baghdad back to Kuwait where we were stationed. Uh, We could have landed in Iraq at Talil Air Base, which was a base that we had taken over at the time. But we decided, you know, these are the things we were talking about that – if I crashed, there was no hospital, there was no ambulance. So we wanted to go back to Kuwait if we could make it because they had the rescue uh, and recovery forces that I would need. Now, I've never flown. Well, I've got 3,000 hours on my A-10 simulator at home, Kim. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm not an engineer, but I'm thinking of an A-10 without hydraulics. I'm thinking uh, brakes? No brakes. Well, we have an emergency backup braking system that gives you five brake applications. So normal braking was not there, no nose wheel steering, no speed braking, uh, just a lot of uh, missing parts and pieces. I had to get the gear down through an alternate emergency procedure as well because all of those things take hydraulics. Mm -hmm. Uh, So thankfully we had plenty to do to keep us busy on the way back, to go through plenty of emergency procedures, which in a way was good because it kept me focused uh, because if I – if I had free time, if I had a spare moment, my mind could wander and think about really all those worst-case scenarios, you know, about crashing and whether or not I would survive. And that just wasn't a, a place that I needed to stay. So I really tried to focus on all those emergency procedures and what could we do to make this airplane fly better on the way back. Well, you did get her down safely. Yeah. You didn't didn't go into a ditch or anything as far as I know. No, it was probably the best landing I've ever done. <laughs> How often has uh, A-10 been landed under manual control? Uh, there were three attempts before mine during Operation Desert Storm, and um, sadly they were not all successful. We lost a pilot on the first attempt. Uh, on the second attempt, the pilot was able to get the airplane on the ground, but uh, he swerved on and off the runway several times, and uh, the airplane was destroyed. He was very lucky to survive. But there was uh, one situation, very similar damage to mine, where the pilot was able to get the airplane on the ground successfully. So uh, I knew there was, a, I don't know, a glimmer of hope <laughs> that I could do it too. Quite a sense of relief as you're getting out of that cockpit, and I'm guessing the ground crews are coming up saying, how on earth? What was the final battle damage assessment? How many holes? Did somebody take a pencil into account? Yeah, I think eventually they did. It was something over 600 uh, holes in the airplane from the shrapnel damage. I have to tell you, I mean, I couldn't see the damage when I was flying it back. So when I hopped out of the airplane and there were a bunch of Marine firefighters waiting to meet me, and I think the look on their face was just this complete shock, you know, looking at me, looking at the airplane. And (laughs) I kind of walked to the back of the jet, and it was just 
it was dripping with hydraulic fluid. There were holes everywhere. The back end of the, the tail section was charred, covered, you know, in this black char from a fire that had happened at some point. I mean, I was shocked. I really was shocked and amazed that the airplane could take that hit and still keep flying. Well, we're very glad they could. And I'm sure (laughs) Soup Campbell is very glad as well. Okay, when we come back, I want to talk about your book and just a lot lot of great takeaways in this book. But I want to start off with family because as people heard from the beginning of the show, your husband, uh, Scott Campbell, is also an A-10 pilot. And that created some extra learning experiences, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Kim Campbell, call sign Killer Chick. You can learn more. Visit kim-kc-campbell.com. Don't forget, folks, uh, over 500 shows archived at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please spread the word. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Garcia. We're speaking with Kim Campbell. Kim's an A-10 pilot. She's got a great new book out called Flying in the Face of Fear of Fighter Pilots, Lessons on Leading with Courage. You can also learn more. Visit kim-kc-campbell.com. Kim, I mentioned when we first first had you on American Warrior Radio, it was alongside your husband, Scott, on call sign Soup Campbell. That's not as cool as Killer Chick, but I guess it makes sense. <laughs> Um, in your book, you take particular experiences and then you sort of summarize in the back what the leadership lessons are from that experience. Obviously, your little situation uh, over Baghdad on April 7, 2003 was a big one, but there's lots of other examples. And I, One thing I really enjoyed about your book is I don't know how many couples have both been awarded Distinguished Flying Crosses, but the number of married couples in well in the Air Force specifically you cite at, at only about ten percent. And when you were initially trying to make the decision of what plane to fly and you wanted to fly the A ten, that was your first choice. Um but there was some question with your husband being an A ten pilot whether that was a good idea. And the takeaway from that comes out of just set in your book so you know, set your own flight path. There's lots of people who try to talk you out of that and said it would never work for you and your husband, that you both could not be successful in the Air Force. But Kim set her own flight path. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we love, I mean, we are grateful for the, all the advice that we got throughout our careers. You know, it was all well-intentioned. But in the end, you know, we were unique. I mean, we were, you know, there weren't a lot of married A-10 couples at the time when we started. And you know, our commanders didn't quite know how best to support us. And a lot of the advice that we got was that we would have to choose one career over another. And Scott and I just decided that we both love what we were doing. We love flying the A-10 and we would just continue doing that until it didn't work or until we decided to do something else. Uh, we really did have to set our own path. And and there was risk in that. We didn't really know what it would mean for our career, but we set our priorities in terms of what was important for us, which was to stay together as a couple, but also to go on flying the airplane that we absolutely loved. One of the other kind of sad quotes or, or elements that came out of your book was a situation where because of that, and I mean, clearly there was challenges, uh, not just deployments, but trying to get assignments in the same vicinity. And at one point, your son, I don't know how old he was at the time, eight, 10 years old, maybe, he went up to the three-star general, your boss, and, and basically said, I hope 
you know, I wish my dad would get fired. Yeah, there we, you know, we had some tough times uh, later in our career and trying to do it all, as you say. And at the at the time that that happened, uh, I was a group commander. I was responsible for more than a thousand people down in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. My husband was the wing commander at Davis Mountain Air Force Base, responsible for more than eleven thousand people there. And we, we were busy. Uh, we were gone a lot, and we were doing our best to be home, at least have someone home with the kids. But it was rare when the four of us were all together. Uh, and so uh, my kids just, it was hard for them. And, and we realized that that was a, one of those assignments that was incredible from a leadership perspective. Uh, but we also understood the toll that it took on our kids. And, uh, you know, kids will say what they think. <laughs> and my son certainly did. So there's nothing like telling the three-star general that you want your dad to get fired. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it helped us refocus a little bit and prioritize our life and realize that, yes, kids are resilient, but, you know, at some point they can only take so much and, and we can only take so much. And then that's why we made the decision to retire based on a lot of those uh, those family decisions. It didn't quite happen as quickly as we thought. We, uh, we had intended to retire from that assignment. And then uh, we got an offer to go back to the Air Force Academy, kind of back where it all started for us and a place where we could have more family time and be together as a family while also contributing to this awesome next generation of leaders. How cool was that returning through that front guard gate after yeah. having been there as a cadet? It's pretty awesome to come back. It's not, you know, sometimes as a cadet, you you just kind of take it for granted and all you want to think about is graduating and leaving. But coming back to where it all started for me and driving in that gate and, and driving up to the, the Air Force Academy and remembering all the challenges and hard times and everything that I had gone through, but to be back in a place where now I could have the opportunity to give back, you know, to help influence and lead this next generation uh, was pretty, it was exciting. It was just, um, you know, it was, it was a great place to come back where we started to kind of come full circle in life. Kim, there's lots of great takeaways in your book, Flying in the Face of Fear. Um, and I don't want to give too much of it away but I'll tell you, the, the one chapter that I enjoyed the most personally, given my my work in the business community and, and public service, was uh, aviate, communicate, and navigate. Because I think there there's a lot of stuff that I, as a civilian, could take from that. And I when I, my first real job at the Chamber of Commerce, my, I never forget, my boss told me, he says, look, you've got your list of things to do every morning sitting there on your desk. Take the one you want to do the least, the one you hate the most, and attack that one first in the morning. And you'll you'll find your day goes better. You use an example of a, a four ship formation you were trying to bring in in weather to to highlight the importance of that order: aviate, communicate, and navigate. Why don't you explain that to our listeners, if you would? Yeah. So that that phraseology is something that we learn early in our careers: aviate, focus on what's most important, which in our case was flying the airplane; navigate, where you gain situational awareness of your surroundings, find a safe place to land, and communicate ask for help, right? Let people know what's going on. It helps us to pr prioritize and slow down in an emergency. And this situation that you're referring to is flying into Afghanistan in the weather, and I lost contact radio communication with my number four airplane. So I was leading four airplanes down into Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan uh, through the weather, which was incredibly uncomfortable for us. We had very set procedures um, but when I lost radio communication with number four, my number four airplane, 
you know, of course, you're starting to think about all these worst case scenarios. What happened to him? You know, did he crash? What, you know, is he having an emergency? Is there what's going on? And so in that moment, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed because I'm trying to lead my foreship into the the base. I can't communicate with my number four. We're trying to coordinate all separate procedures for all of us to go in and land. uh, And it's starting to feel a bit overwhelming. And I realized very quickly that I cannot do it all myself. I have to focus first on aviating, flying my airplane, and getting the airplanes down on the ground safely. Uh, I've got to navigate. I've got to get myself there. I've got to ask for help from all the con- the controllers, my other airplanes, so that they can help out in that scenario. And I end up asking my number three airplane. He's a little bit closer to him. You know, maybe he can get communications with him. But again, it's it's reminding yourself in those moments where you're feeling overwhelmed, when there's a lot going on, that you have to be able to prioritize what is most important in that moment uh, and then follow through with the rest of the things. Uh, also critical to know that in those moments when you're feeling overwhelmed, you don't have to do it on your own. You can communicate and ask for help. And sometimes that's hard for us, uh, especially hard for people that are used to doing it all on their own. I tell you what, I've heard this before, Kim, but definitely one of the other takeaways came out came out of me from the book is it's okay to be vulnerable. Like I said, it's okay to ask for help. And one of the most important elements of leadership is empowering your subordinates to do what they can do. And yeah. it's more, you know, you, you've got a chapter called Commander's Intent in there where you, you talk about it. And you, you mentioned General Patton's quote, uh, never tell people how to do things, tell them what to do, and they'll surprise you with their ingenuity. Kim, we've only got about two minutes left. Any other takeaways? Uh, and folks, I encourage you to read this book, but uh, Kim, any other messages you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, the thing I would say, you know, this book is titled Flying in the Face of Fear. And I, I will be honest, I was a little hesitant to use that word fear in the title initially because I think a lot of times people hear the word fear and they think about vulnerability or weakness in a negative way. But the truth is I look back on my career and I realize there were so many moments where I felt a sense of fear or worry or nervousness but I did it anyway. It was about walking up the ramp to go to basic training. It was about walking into my fighter squadron knowing I was the only female pilot. It was taking off on a risky close air submission. It was, you know, being at home as a mom with two kids and my husband deployed for a year. In each of those moments, there was a sense of fear of like, can I do this? And, you know, wanting to do well, wanting to excel. And what I've realized having the ability to reflect now for, you know, 20 plus years is that, it's not the fear that matters. It's all about what you do in that moment. It is about stepping up to take action in the face of fear, and it's about having the courage to respond even when you're scared. That is what is most important, and that's why I titled the book that way, one of the many reasons that I wrote the book. What you do and how you come out of that crucible moment. You wrap that up with a nice little bow, Kim. <laughs> I do my best. Folks, you can not only get the book, but you can also, Kim, as I understand it, Kim, you also go around and do speeches. You can learn more at kim-kc-campbell.com. Kim, thank you so much for spending some time with our listeners today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And my best of soup. You bet. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. You can also stream it on your favorite platform, whatever that might be. We're on iTunes, Amazon, Google. Spotify. I can't think of them all, but you can find us if you want to. Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.